This environment is so different from the one in which we evolved to seek out information that the key to navigating it is to honestly try to avoid it as much as possible. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are a wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Christopher Mims. Christopher is a technology columnist at Wall Street Journal. Before joining the journal in 2014, he worked as a science and technology journalist and editor for a variety of august publications, including Quartz, Technology Review, Wired, and Scientific American. He is the author, very recently, of Arriving Today, which unveils the fascinating and intricate story of how products arrive at our doors through the global supply chain. Christopher has a wonderful Twitter stream, which you can find at MIMS, M-I-M-S. In this episode, he shares insights on seeing what's next, filtering tools, valuable conversations, tapping expertise, and far more. Keep listening to learn how Christopher thrives on overload. Christopher, it's a delight to have you on the show. It's a delight to be here. Thank you for having me. So, Christopher, I've heard you, heard you describe what you do, or part of what you do, as searching for needles in haystacks and exploring all sorts of wonderful information to get there. So, so tell me, what, what do you do? How do you explore this wonderful world of uh, media? Uh, you know, a, a lot of different ways, and, and it it keeps evolving. And um, I think the sort of governing principle for me is, uh, you know, I'm searching for valuable new information that is is true and useful and helps me, you know, build a worldview and kind of look a little bit around the corner to what's next. Because, you know, fortunately, I, I, I'm not in the business of prediction. I'm not a futurist. I am not a venture capitalist. You know, I don't have to really try to see that far ahead. You know, as a, as a journalist and a technology columnist, I'm really just trying to see what is next? What is the very next thing? And get to that just, you know, I don't know, five minutes or a week or six months before somebody else, or if somebody else has already gotten to it, maybe I can explain it a little more clearly to our audience or explain it in a different way to make it more accessible to a wider range of people. So that's a pretty doable thing, ultimately. And um, making it happen is just a lot of process, which has happened for me because, you know, I write a, a weekly tech column it is very routine in good ways, you know, in that like every week I am, you know, tackling a new topic and researching it pretty systematically. And so that's given me a lot of chance to just practice that process. So it's a bit like language immersion, I think, 
for anybody who's learned a foreign language, you know, you just, you really steep yourself in it. You know, part of what I'm doing as a journalist, but specifically as a columnist, is what I have long called hypothesis-driven journalism, which is that hopefully I can learn enough about a topic that I can say, hey, I wonder if somebody's doing like X or Y or, 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 you know, it seems like if people are doing A, B, and C, they might next try like DEF or like the second order consequence of that might be this other thing. And then I might just go and, and kind of look for that. And I sometimes feel like that comes a bit from my scientific training, which is what I, science is what I did before I was a journalist. You know, I have an undergraduate degree in neuroscience. I spent a couple of years in the lab and it was kind of like getting a master's degree. I mean, I certainly did that an equivalent amount of, of, of bench science, you know, and I've published papers on some pretty <laughs> uh, esoteric subjects in invertebrate neuroscience. That was good practice for, you know, being in an environment with other really smart people who are just constantly trying to poke holes in your ideas. But but during the sort of generative phase, anything goes like, huh, maybe these insects are are detecting electrical fields around them directly with their nervous systems <laughs> was a hypothesis we were testing at one point with aquatic invertebrates. Um, turned out not to be true. It would have been pretty friggin' cool if it was true. But, you know, that's kind of what I'm doing every week. Like, I'll just I'll just step into a topic and be like, I wonder if uh, the coming wave of electric trucks is going to convince a bunch of people who otherwise wouldn't be environmentalists to, quote unquote, go green. Like, what's the research on that? And that ended up being a very fruitful article involving a bunch of behavioral economists. Turns out if, if, if you make, as Elon Musk has taught us, if you if you make the green choice, the the exciting choice, people will adopt it and then they'll adopt other ideologies along the way. So I'd like to unpack that because there's a lot in, lot in there. And I think there's a, a number of pieces which which all feed on themselves at some point. So uh, do you articulate these hypotheses to yourselves? Do you, do you have a list of these ideas? Yeah, I mean, definitely. Like I have, you know, a couple of files. Like one is like things that are really on deck that I'm pitching to my editor next. And other things I'm just exploring, you know, just gathering string on. And, you know, there are certain tools that I use that kind of help with that. Like, I think a really underappreciated tool, if you're really trying to just learn more and more sort of by immersion about a given topic is, is of all things, Google News. It's actually a better filter for me than social media. Like, I try to just dip into social media occasionally, but not really get my news from it because it's, there's a lot of kind of perverse incentives in social media that lead to a lot of, you know, nonsense and wasted time. But um, yes. funny enough, Google News, it does two things that that help me a lot. The Google News app or site or whatever. One is it has pretty decent AI, which does learn my interests. Like, it's definitely watching what I'm clicking on and opening and reading. So it's going to feed me more of that. And it has pretty good AI for grouping news uh, items by topic. So sometimes I'll be reading about, you know, something that I'm interested in, like carbon capture or whatever. And it's pulling a bunch of news articles that are related to that, even if they're not using the same keywords. So it's pretty sophisticated in that way. The other thing that I noticed recently that it does, which is a bit unexpected, is if your accounts are all linked, if you're just logged into Google everywhere and you're using the Chrome browser, Google knows what you are, what tabs you're opening in Chrome, and it will then show me news stories on that topic later in Google News. I mean, that's also how you learn like an, a language on Duolingo, for example, right? Is that is that you, you, you get exposed to something and then like a week later it exposes it to you again because there's a certain half-life of your memory for stuff like that. Yes. So in a funny way, these two different characteristics of the Google News app 
one would sort of push tend to push me toward being inside of a filter bubble because it's always you know the AI would in theory always feed me the same stuff or more of the stuff that I'm interested in already. But because I'm constantly just poking around researching other new topics, that is kind of like a different flow of information into my main newsreader that helps me a lot. And then obviously a, a great deal of what I'm learning just comes from talking to people. And it's incredible how having a really engaged, exciting, earnest conversation with another human being is this incredibly swift filter for refining your own ideas and finding out what's meaningful in somebody's field. And look, I have this incredible privilege as a journalist of the, at the Wall Street Journal that, you know, if I email somebody, they're like, yep, we'll get our CEO on the phone in two days, you know, or next week or whatever. So I get to talk to people who are sometimes the most knowledgeable people in a field, and they're ready to boil it down for me very quickly. That's invaluable. That's just a privilege of kind of where I am as a journalist. So I think and one of the points around the Google News, or I suppose any AI or any algorithmic news filters, is that as long as you are diverse in your interests, it keeps being diverse for you and what it shows you. Yes, that's absolutely key. And, 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 you know, look, we're all different in that way. But like w- one thing that I found out recently that I found kind of interesting was, you know, most people when they get past a certain age are just kind of apparently, I didn't know this because I'm the opposite, just listening to pretty much the same music over and over again from some earlier period in their life. And I've never been that person. I've always been this voracious consumer of new artists and new genres. And so, you know, I think that's part of the reason that I'm a journalist is that I get bored easily and I get restless and I just want to move on to a new topic. That's interesting. Yeah. Same, same for me. And I suppose that that's one of the good ways to measure personality is how recent is the music you listen to? Maybe it is right. I mean, maybe it's just a measure of like novelty seeking, which is of course, a, you know, a pretty stable personality trait across someone's life. Yes. So let's, let's go back to the sources. So, all right, you're, you're interested in things, or you've got a list of whole things that you're interested in, and you want to learn some more. So where do you go to for information? Where do you uh, find it beyond the, the people that you can speak to, which is obviously wonderful, and, uh, you know, and any other immediate sources? Yeah, I mean, well, obviously, like, you know, just as, as any sort of conscientious reader these days or journalist, like, I have my mental list of trusted sources. You know, I mean, it's amazing how easy it is to just, uh, you know, pop a term into Google and and it spits out a bunch of really great articles on that subject. And, you know, I know which which writers I trust and which uh, publications I trust. And um, that can be an infinite variety of sources, right? It could be an, an article in The Economist, but it could also be, you know, a thread on Reddit or Hacker News or something like that. Sometimes when a piece trends on Hacker News, the comments there can be quite interesting because it's a kind of a self-selecting community. So it's not just like the comment section on a YouTube video or something like that. I mean, obviously yes. there's a, still a ton of useful conversation on Twitter between experts. I mean, not when something goes super viral and all the bots and the kind of just randos pile on, but it's incredible how somebody can be talking about very technical subjects there. And, you know, other engineers are, you know, the kind of people I would want to talk to start to weigh in and, you know, so that information, it, it feels like it's kind of everywhere as long as you know what your trusted sources should be. How do you take notes or how do you pull the, thread the ideas together? Do you use any note-taking apps or structures or just in docs or is it in your head? Yeah, I've played with a lot of different things and, and I certainly had to play with, you know, more elaborate ones when I was putting together my book. 
But at the end of the day, I've just discovered that the simplest is the best. So I'll just open up a new doc, like a new Google doc or whatever, and just start dropping links and notes in there. And, you know, that's fine. The, the simplicity is, it works for me. Like I don't, I'm not the kind of person who has a lot of patience for managing a ton of card catalog type organization you know, organization that I have to think about or manage, you know, I've used those kind of like branching idea tree type services and apps and stuff. But eventually I just end up wanting to dump it all in one place. And then later I can search it, you know, or scan it very quickly, you know, with my eyes. So for that sort of thing, I try to keep it as simple as possible. Occasionally I will take notes, not pen to paper, but I'll use like a, you know, like a remarkable two tablet or, or some other type of tablet because I still find that writing things down is a kind of helpful way to think about them. You are listening to the Thriving on Overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the Thriving on Overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan so you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. So you mentioned your book just out called Arriving Today, which delves into the delights and marvels of the global supply chain, which is a pretty pretty big and deep and hairy topic. So, so that's maybe a great case study in uh, how you do your research. How did you uh, learn what you needed to learn to write that? Well, any project like that, you know, it's always impossible until it's done. It's really about just breaking it into, it's the old, that old chestnut about breaking it into small pieces. I mean, one of the things that's nice about a book is once you have a, a structure in mind, you can break it into chapters. And that's kind of a, a manageable size for me because I've, you know, I spent my life writing long columns and feature articles and stuff. And I'm so practiced at that, that I can kind of hold the entire structure of, of a piece that's, you know, two to three to 4,000 words just in my head as I'm working on it. So, you know, breaking it into chapters helped. And then, you know, because I, I traced the path of an object through the global supply chain across the world, each one of those chapters kind of naturally became an episode in that journey. So, you know, there's the chapters on transoceanic shipping and the chapters on automated warehouses of the type that Amazon runs and long haul trucking and all the rest. So it really was just about breaking it down into its constituent pieces. That said, when I was in the earliest stages of it, I did use this thing called Ginkgo. I think it's ginkgoapp.com or something, which it's like some lone programmer somewhere maintains this uh, cloud-based thing where you can just like basically create index cards worth of links and information and then just kind of nest them endlessly in a giant tree, which is searchable. And that did kind of help me in the earliest days when I was just kind of immersing myself and just reading so much and being like, okay, well, here's an interesting fact about trucking. All right, I put that under that branch of the tree. Here's an interesting fact about ocean-going vessels. I'll put that under that branch of the tree. But if I had to do it all over again, I don't know, maybe I would have just dumped that all into one giant dock with sections for each uh, subject. And so in a way, that's that's still using that hypothesis driven in the sense of this is the theme of the chapter and then trying to find the things which will flesh that out or find the detail or to create the frame for it. Yeah, I mean, I think one way that I think about it as a journalist is what are the types of experts that I need to talk to to understand this top to bottom? You know, and one is you're, you're looking for that 
knowledgeable outsider. So that analyst whose job it is to kind of look at something dispassionately in a, in a sort of classic like consumer tech article that might be, you know, somebody from Gartner or IDC who's going to talk to you about, you know, here's why sales of laptops were up or down last year or something like that. Having been in academia, I, I really like to find academics because it's incredible when you find that person who's spent their entire life, devoted their entire life to researching a particular subject, whether that's long haul trucking or, you know, the fissuring of labor markets in a way that makes them more hostile to unionization. I mean, those are both two types of experts who were really shaped their respective chapters in my book. You know, and then I'm going to go talk to the, the sort of company leader types, the CEOs, et cetera, the project leads who are kind of, you know, on the ground doing it every day. The, you know, the CTOs who have to build and maintain, you know, the IT and the robotics and the sometimes the physical infrastructure that makes things work. You know, and then if I can, I'm also going to go talk to the people who are just really doing it in, in the real world. You know, they might be hourly workers who are, you know, functioning within some type of system. And that kind of gives me that top to bottom. I don't know, maybe it's almost anthropological. It's, al- it's almost like a form of ethnography in a way. So getting the diverse perspectives, sort of different eyes on the same thing. So I suppose, yeah, hopefully they're all complementary. But in terms of your own synthesis or make sense, what happens when there are differing views on on the same topic? How do you resolve that? I mean, part part of that is that I, that, that you know I'm I'm deliberately seeking people who have different views on a subject. But I'm also really wary of false balance, which is, you know, I think something that journalism has had a problem with in politics and in, you know, in the past and coverage of climate change. I mean, people forget, but like 10, 15 years ago, if you were going to quote somebody talking about the perils of climate change in the New York Times, typically you would also quote somebody else who's like, that's it's nothing. This is a liberal conspiracy. You know, that's a pretty tragic example of false balance. Like you don't have to quote an anti-vaxxer in the same paragraph that you quote Anthony Fauci talking about the importance of wearing masks. So I'm looking for those places where intelligent and informed people can disagree and, and seeking out, you know, those, those different viewpoints. And again, luckily, because I'm not in the business of predicting, I'm not in the business of investing. That's kind of my whole job is to represent that spectrum of opinion because I don't necessarily have to come down on one side or another of a debate. I can just describe its contours. So you're, in a sense, not just feeding your own insight, but help, you know, your job is to help others to form their own views or opinions or, you know, frame on a topic. Yeah, 100%. I, I, I view my job as, you know, being an educator. So I've got to start by educating myself and then hopefully take people along with me on that journey and, and by by that mechanism, educate them as well. Just actually looping back to, to the very beginning, talking about the needles in the haystacks. And so the scanning, you're scanning, you're seeing lots of things all the time. So is there, in terms of that sensing of what it is that is that matters, that is useful, that is interesting or not interesting, uh, or is you know, worth, worth following the thread up, is this all just framed by your hypotheses or ideas you're searching? Is there anything which you can introspect, I suppose, and how you perceive what is you know, worth looking more at or not? I mean, that's entirely at the subconscious level because I've learned over many years that I just, I have to let my personal preferences guide me. 
because otherwise I'm just not going to be able to sustain the level of interest required to really educate myself about a topic. And the only time that that's not true is when I get assigned some topic by an editor. And, you know, ironically, or perhaps unsurprisingly, sometimes those are the pieces where I learn the most or maybe there's the most interesting result because an editor will be like, what's going on with this thing? You know, the metaverse or whatever. And I, and here I am just like rolling my eyes, trying to avoid the topic because I think it's marketing nonsense, but just being forced to dig into it. Uh, you, sometimes I come away thinking like, wow, I'm really grateful that happened. Like this is why I work in a news organization instead of being one of these solo journalists who just supports himself with Substack or whatever. That kind of raises a really important point, which is that I'm a, just very, very, very strong believer in the the kind of songwriting duo mode of creation, which is like whether I'm a writer working with an editor or you imagine like, uh, you know, John and Paul writing songs for the Beatles or F. Scott Fitzgerald and his interaction with his editor. A lot of people don't know this, but The Great Gatsby was in a completely different book and he basically rewrote it in the margins of that original book after a dialogue with his editor. <laughs> so yeah, like the great American novel was written in the margins of a much worse novel um, because of that creative collaboration. So a lot of what I do or what I try to do is a meeting of minds and is really bouncing ideas off of other people, whether that's in interviews or in other contexts and, and relying on them because there's, you know, there, there's that hive mind that happens interpersonally or on the internet, which is just irreplaceable. I mean, I think it's integral to how humans function and the success of our species. I think in a way that we don't often acknowledge, like humans are, we are truly a hive mind, like almost to the level of like ants and, and termites and other eusocial insects, like bees. Like we, I think we, we're all kind of think of ourselves as individualists, especially in America, but it's kind of nonsense. <laughs> Like we're just we're a giant uh, hive organism. Yes, and the more the more that we uh, tap the value of collaborative thinking, uh, you know, the the better outcomes we get to. For sure, up to a limit, right? And people have studied that the sort of so-called wisdom of crowds. Like, I mean, you know, say what you will about markets, always find the right price for an asset. Like that's one thing, but like you know, as we've all experienced, if 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 a group of collaborators gets above a certain size. It, its value kind of breaks down. So, you know, small groups, I think uh, Jeff Bezos called it what, like the two pizza team or whatever, no teams larger than can be fed by two takeout pizzas are, are key to, you know, innovating and thinking in that way. So around the frame of synthesis and pulling it all together, this obviously that's a mental you know, faculty where when you're exposed to a lot of things to pull out you know, the gestalts, how it comes together. Is that just part of the process for you? Are there any ways in which you, you know, facilitate or nurture that state of mind to be able to uh, pull all the pieces together and synthesize them into a, into a broader view of your topic? Yeah. I mean, I think anybody who has to do this work eventually notices their patterns of kind of mental acuity. And, uh, you know, it's worth thinking of yourself as, I mean, this is going to sound absurd and just like just my eyes are going to roll back in my head, but like, you know, kind of like a mental athlete in a way, but, but it's true. You know, I mean, look, the brain is a muscle consumes 20 to 30% of all of our calories. Like there's a lot going on there and you have to respect it. And you have to know like that when you're doing this kind of synthesis, 
you know, if you're doing it after the right kind of preparation, you know, when you finally have enough information to really get it all down on paper or describe it to somebody else and you're doing it at the proper time of day and you're rested and you've gotten some exercise and had a little coffee, like, you you know, you can, you can do more in, in two hours than, than you could in, you know, two weeks of working in some other suboptimal way. I think people have researched this and for really intense knowledge work, you really only get like what, four to six hours of it a day. You know, maybe you can push that, but you're going to pay for it at other times. So yeah, I mean, uh, like anybody, I- I've learned that the that kind of mind-body connection is incredibly important. And if I want to do this work well and consistently, you know, I've got to treat my body and my brain as a machine and it's up to me to maintain it. I mean, part of that also is my training as a neuroscientist. Like it's, I think I have a very, very mechanistic view of, of the brain and the mind, which is just the brain. So creating the, well, part of it then creating the conditions where your mind's ready to engage and to dive deep and to pull the pieces together. Right. But also, you know, as Steve Jobs said, real art is ship. Like I'm, I'm not waiting around for inspiration. I'm kind of sitting down every damn day and just do, doing the work. I always think of the um, the tour of Hemingway's house, which is a great pilgrimage for any writer to make. Y- you know, they take you through his house and they show you like the attached uh, kind of studio where he would write. And even though Hemingway was a severe alcoholic and had all of these, uh, you know, untold relationship dramas in his life, because also he was bipolar and not diagnosed and not medicated. He was a guy who woke up at 6 a.m. every morning and went and to his office and wrote for six hours. And then he drank and fished and womanized and made all kinds of unfortunate life decisions, you know, which is how he wrote all those novels. So yeah, it's, it's like bricklaying or anything else. Like it's a craft, even mental work is a trade, I would say. Pulling this together, I mean, what would be any advice? Uh, well, I suppose there anything which you haven't covered. Anything? What would be any advice you would offer to to people to thrive on overload, to make sense of information, or you know, either distilling what we've discussed or any other points? What else should people uh, learn from you, from uh, how they create value from information? So, I think that um, you have to keep in mind the information environment in which we evolved, which was a relatively low information environment for most of human history, right? I mean, even after the printing press, right? Like books are expensive and rare. So I think that humans have been, we have evolved to, you know, seek out gossip, which is has tremendous value and seek out new information. You know, if we're a curious person, which is most people, but now we, live in a time when the internet gives us infinite access to that. It's way too much. So I think the term infobesity applies here where, you know, if humans evolved in a, in an environment where most of the time we were just trying to, you know, not starve. So we evolved a very intense craving for foods that are probably ultimately not good for us and will cause all kinds of metabolic disorders. And so we have to exercise some self-control in our, in our world of infinitely available calories. And in the same way, we have to exercise that self-control in our world of infinitely available information. And, you know, the truth is for everything that I've just said about, oh, here's how I find new ideas and everything. The number one way that I find those needles in haystacks is I say no as often and as clearly as I can to 
new sources of stimulation, additional sources of information, you know, more articles that I could or might want to read. Like I have all of these systems for, you know, blocking social media when I um, am working. So it's not a distraction, you know, sending every article that I find interesting straight to the article saving service pocket so that I can read it later when I have the time, if I have the time, you know, avoiding lots of social media. I'm sort of purposely bad at email because the more, the faster you respond to people, the more correspondence you're going to have with them. So everything that I do is about actually kind of trying to keep information at bay and spend less time on the internet because we live in an era of infinitely available information and it is seeking us out. It's being pushed to our phones in the forms of alerts. So I think that, you know, this environment is so different from the one in which we evolved to seek out information that the key to navigating it is to honestly try to avoid it as much as possible. Yeah, absolutely. That's, um, that's the starting point to be able to find what we want is to get rid of everything which uh, it doesn't serve us. Yeah, 100%. Thank you so much for your time and your insights, Christopher. That's been really valuable. Well, it's fun to talk about it. And uh, I appreciate that you're so curious about this topic. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review, and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.